0: while everybody's taking their seat i have a couple of announcements first of all should be announcement up here but starting next week there's going to be an afternoon every day next week afternoon zoom meeting with camp arete i think it's from three o'clock is that right three to five, three to five central time next week Uh, That would have been the week that uh, Camp Arete was going to take place, so they're going to have an afternoon uh, Bible study, so uh, you can get that information on the Camp Arete website for for the sign-up. Then the other announcement is that the early voting for the Texas primary runoff is taking place, uh, started last week, last week, and this week, so be sure to check on your... um, you know, check to see what for your precinct where you're where you're voting and where who who's in the runoff. Most people are just having two or three uh two or three runoff, some are more uh related to national. I know that's true down in the Sugarland Richmond area. And also there are some some state important state elections in uh, in the Spring Branch area uh and uh local Houston as well. So be sure to check on those things. As believers, we need to definitely be involved. I do not think that we will see elections as important as the ones we can vote in ever again. If we survive the next 10 years, maybe things will get better, but things are extremely serious in this country, and believers have to get out and vote and vote and be informed. So we'll study some of that tonight and as well as as next week and our ongoing study on Thursday night related to how should we how should we then vote. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not for I am with thee Because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of prayer. We'll begin with silent prayer so you can make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord. That means that if necessary, you may confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge sin in your life in silent prayer to the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this evening knowing that you are the God who is in control. You are the God who is overseeing history. You are working out your plan according to your purposes. That, Father, we don't know where we are on that timeline or what will take place. And we come to you and ask you to give wisdom to our leaders. Paul exhorts us in 1 Timothy 2 that we are to pray for all of our leaders so that we may live peaceable lives lives without conflict so that we can carry out the mission our lord jesus christ gave us and father these are unstable times due to the virus and also politically we have enemies in this country who hate the constitution who hate america who have bought into many of satan's lies and father we pray that you would expose them that they, you would raise up more pastors who would be willing to teach the truth and expose those who have already bought into the lie. For there are too many pastors who have already apostatized the truth and are leading large numbers of people uh, into uh, terrible, terrible slavery to these ideas. Father, we pray for us that you would give us wisdom that no matter what may take place, we can trust in you, but that we can make wise decisions with regard to our lives, our lives and our futures and father we pray that you'd give us insight tonight so that we can see the world around us so we can understand the times and we pray this in christ's name amen all right we're going to begin tonight with a little bit of review some things that we've covered in our study on thursday night But we haven't been covering them in the Samuel series, and so it's important to review this. Now, what we're going to start with, as I covered last week looking at the Sheba rebellion, is to talk about what does the Bible say about revolution, revolutionaries, and biblical truth. And we live in a time when there are numerous people and organizations who are set on developing a revolution in this country and overthrowing the Constitution, overthrowing all that has, uh, we have known and hold dear for the last uh, 245 years, something like that. And, and f- we are faced with some uh, tragic social and political upheavals if we do not stand firm. And so we need to understand what the Scripture says so that as we look at things that sound good and have slogans that we think uh, are are true and accurate and that we we can validate, that maybe they don't mean what they say they mean. And so we need to look beneath the covers, as it were, and come to understand what is really going on in this country. So we're going to look at what the Bible says about revolution, revolutionaries, and biblical truth. Now, to do this, we need to establish a framework for critique. Now, this is foundational. I mean, I I think this way. I look at Scripture, and I think through these things. And this is what we've looked at on Thursday night, that the foundation of all thought basically focuses on three broad categories. The first is ultimate reality. And what... uh, uh, philosophy calls metaphysics, it's talking about God. What is out there? What is beyond what we see? Is there a personal infinite God, which is the view of the Bible? Or is there nothing there? It's just, just we have nothing but uh, eternal matter. And that is the view of what is called naturalism. So whenever we evaluate anything, I remember uh, learning this model when I was in seminary, That if you're looking at the claims of anybody, whoever it is, then first thing you do is you say, well, what is their view of God? If you're evaluating a cult, if you're evaluating some uh, Christian sect, if you're evaluating another religion, what is their view of God? You look at Islam, what is their view of God? You look at Buddhism, what is their view of God? You look at Uh, these various movements that we have in this country, you should ask, what is their view of God? Are they coming from a foundation where God is a personal, infinite God who created all things and rules over all things according to His will? Or are they starting from atheism, from naturalism, from uh, evolutionary thought? And then, uh, as a result of that, you want to ask the question, well, what then is man? What is their view of man? Biblically, Mankind is created in God's image and likeness. Every single human being. This is what was meant in the Declaration of Independence when it said we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men, all mankind, every human being is created equal. That's what the Bible teaches, that Adam and Eve were created individually and that they Uh, were created male and female in the image and likeness of god so this means that every single human being has value has significance has meaning and purpose it doesn't matter what their skin color is it doesn't matter what their ethnicity is what country they come from it doesn't matter if they're tall short white black it doesn't matter if they've got curly hair no hair blonde hair black hair All human beings are created equal, and therefore they have value, meaning, and and purpose. But the problem that we have is sin. Although Adam and Eve were created perfect, there was a test in the Garden of Eden, and when they failed the test and disobeyed God, it was an act of rebellion. We'll come back to that in a little while. And it introduced corruption into the human race. So therefore, nothing that humans get involved with is ever going to be perfect. No matter what the endeavor, there's always going to be flaws and failures because sinners are involved in the process. And that corrupts whatever it is that they touch. So we can never produce anything of absolute perfection. We can produce some things that are excellent, some things that are better than anything else that has ever happened, that provide more uh, opportunity, but we cannot produce perfection. So there's always going to be flaws. There's always going to be injustice. There's always going to be uh, inequality of results. There's always going to be uh, wars. There's always going to be famines. There's going to be diseases and pestilence. That is part of living in as a fallen creature in a corrupt world. We then learn that we have the area of knowledge. Where do we get truth? We get truth from God through re, his revelation of himself, through his creation, number one, that's known as general revelation, and number two, through his scripture. So we have to ask the question, how does so-and-so How does this organization, how does this person, how does this philosophy, how does this religion view the authority and the sufficiency of the Word of God? The reason I add sufficiency is a lot of people will say, well, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. Today, what you have to say, as we've studied many times, you have to say we we believe in the uh, verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God that is infallible and inerrant. Just to say what in the 1700s somebody meant by we believe the Bible is the word of God. So that is our ultimate authority and we must judge and evaluate every claim, every person, every belief system on the basis of of the word of God. Now the problem that we have today is that we have a number of organizations that are coming to the forefront and are claiming to solve problems of uh, of, of society, social problems, uh, problems related to racism, problems related to uh, economic inequality, problems related to general social suffering. But when you look at their views, their views all come out of a worldview called Marxism. And Marxism is one form of naturalism. So on the one hand, you have a theistic, Christian worldview, that everything starts with God. God is the creator of all things. And you have, on the other hand, the view that everything starts from matter. There's no God, there's no personal infinite deity, that everything is just a product of time plus chance. Those are basically the only two alternatives. If you want to read on this, I suggest you uh, get James Sire's book on the universe next door the 6th edition is coming out in about a month and it will come out electronically on Kindle electronically in Logos Bible Software Uh, you can order online now and get the 5th edition I don't know how different the 6th edition will be but he always upgrades and deals with, uh, with new issues the problem that we have is that as we evaluate who man is what's the problem in Christianity the basic problem is sin. In Marxism the basic problem is economics. He rejects the idea of sin because of course if you start with with matter then you have no basis for even talking about good or evil. Everything that is is. It it you don't have a sense of anything that tells you what is absolutely good or absolutely bad. And so you can't really make evaluative judgments other than based on uh, opinion, or based on majority opinion. And so, for in Marxism, Marx's view was that the problem was economic inequality, and the solution. And this is I'm not going to get into details on this. I'm not giving a lecture on Marxism, but the solution in Marxism is what he called the dialectic. He borrowed that from. Uh, from Hegel, rejected some of Hegel's other ideas. But the idea is that you're constantly moving through a process of thesis. It's one way, and then you, it, it deals with the opposite, and then it produces a synthesis. And you go forward, then the new synthesis becomes a new thesis. It creates an opposite force, the antithesis, and then the resolution is a new synthesis. And so it constantly moves forward. So Marx borrowed from Christianity the idea that everything is moving towards an ultimate goal of utopia. Yeah, he got the idea of a utopia. And in some forms of Marxism, you'll find really an apostate borrowing of the kingdom idea in scripture. And that's what the future kingdom is in Christianity, is that it is the messianic rule. But in Marxism, you have this process that goes forward, but what causes change is natural forces and they are sociological forces that create the this synthesis, antithesis, and then um, our, our thesis, antithesis and then and then synthesis. The problem isn 't sin, the problem is economic inequality. So if we can just make everybody economically equal, then we can move towards this ultimate perfection. The problem with that is that in Christianity, the problem is sin. We can't reach perfection unless and a perfect government or perfect economy unless we have a perfect ruler and the perfect ruler is the Lord Jesus Christ who will return and establish his kingdom in in the future. But what's going to happen when we have a perfect ruler? Remember when we get into the millennial kingdom, it's going to be repopulated by the offspring of those who survived the tribulation, those who who are believers who go into the millennial kingdom. But when they have children, those children will have sin natures and those children will rebel. And so what the millennial kingdom teaches us is the problem isn't economics, the problem isn't uh, environment, the problem isn't parenting, the problem isn't Uh, some sort of education, social, or geographical problem. The problem is sin. The problem is human volition, choosing to do the wrong thing. And so Marxism will fall apart as a wrong problem, wrong solution. The solution for the believer is Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. He pays the penalty for sin so that believers who are born again or made a new creature in Christ can move forward in the process of renewing themselves through the study and application of the Word of God so that they will, uh, through, through the application of the Word, control their sin nature, control their sinful instincts and sinful desires, and that they will begin to live a better way and a better uh, a better life. And so for them, there is a way to rise above whatever problems they may face in life. On Sunday morning, we've been studying in Ephesians, and I pointed out this last time that one of the problems that we've always had in the human race is a problem of... Uh, That relates to ethnic diversity and racism. In the scripture during the period, especially the intertestamental period, the Pharisees and other religious sects in Judaism thought of themselves as being superior to all Gentiles because they had these blessings from God. And that was based on their arrogance. And so what Paul reminds the Ephesian Gentiles of is that now, in Christ, we have all been made one, that dividing law uh, dividing wall of the law is no longer there, and so all are equal before God. This is the foundation for the understanding and the foundation of this country that all all are created equal, but in actuality it is in the body of Christ that we have this equality. And I pointed out that for the Christian, racism, racism is whenever we uh, uh, allow a preference for someone based on ethnicity, based on culture or subculture to override the unity that we have in the body of Christ. That's racism. Whenever we allow... A culture, subculture, whenever we allow ethnicity to override the unity, the oneness that we have in Christ, then that is racism. As a matter of fact, uh, as I've been developing some of these thoughts, I've bounced them off of uh, several different people. And one of the men I talked to yesterday is a, a professor up at uh, Calvary University named Gary Gramacchi. And Gary, has. Spent most of his life drilling down in Ephesians. And so I was talking to him about possibly being a speaker at the Chafer Conference next year. And so in uh, and, and talking to him, I said, well, let me run this definition of racism by you. And his response was uh, he said, I like that. I think I'm going to steal that. So uh, that's for the Christian. That's what racism is. And see, there's such a division today that is occurring because of the outside of the church divisiveness, that it's coming into the church and creating divisions between believers over these issues that are not relevant to the body of Christ. We have to put the body of Christ and the word of God first. So the solution always goes back to the authority of God and the authority of Scripture. And then another thing that we look at is who is Jesus Christ in the view of this worldview, whoever it is, in the view of Marxism, in the view of naturalism, in the view of a a biblical worldview, in the view of another religion, Islam, Buddhism, whatever. How do they view Jesus Christ? And the biblical view is he is the God-man, that came to earth to die on the cross for our sins. This is something that is completely uh, rejected by by um, by Marxists. Now we talk about ethics too. I've already talked about that in terms of sin. We know what right and wrong is because of the character of God. God is a holy God. He's a righteous God. That means that that relates to a standard. Righteousness establishes a standard. Now, one of the problems that we have in all of these isms that are out there is a flawed view of sin. Either they have no view of sin whatsoever, or sin is not the problem, or you have some watered-down concept of sin so that man can work his, work his way uh, to heaven But the issue is that if we're going to talk about justice, and of course a big phrase that's popular to talk about today is social justice, where do you get your concept of right and wrong? Where do you get your concept of justice? And the reality is, as Ravi Zacharias uh, pointed out, is the problem with social justice, the problem with all of these other movements that are going on today is that they have no basis for their ethics, none whatsoever. So it just depends on the will of the group, whatever their uh, majority belief is. That's where they get their view of right or wrong. And it may be one way this week, and it may be another way next year. So there's no absolute concept of right or wrong. And then, so this is the contrast. So this is how we go about evaluating and thinking through questions about uh, organizations like Antifa, organizations like Black Lives Matter, or organizations um, that are out there There are literally dozens and dozens of these networked organizations that are out there. Those are just the two most prominent right now, but they're certainly not the only ones uh, that are out there. Now, the other way in which we need to look at things that I'm just beginning to develop on on uh, Thursday night are the divine institutions. These are social laws that God embedded into uh, reality, they are social absolutes. They are, not, uh, they are true for every culture, every nation, every people, every single human being. The first is individual responsibility. We're responsible for the decisions that we make. If we make bad decisions, we're going to suffer consequences. If we make good decisions and we live responsibly, then we're going to see positive benefits. But when we do wrong, we are going to suffer for doing wrong and that everybody is accountable for their individual decisions. This is what is necessary to make marriage work, the second divine institution. People have to take personal responsibility for the decisions they make, and they need to own up to failures and flaws because no marriage is perfect because every marriage is made up of two people with sin natures. And as I've always said, when two people get together, they need to make sure that their sin natures are compatible. Because we don't always walk by the Spirit, we don't always obey the Lord, and when we are both out of fellowship and we get angry and we get mad and whatever else we do, we've got to be able to understand the other person and why they do what they do. If you take a person who's basically a legalist, very ascetic, and a person who's basically has trends towards antinomianism or lawlessness or permissiveness... And you put them together in a marriage, then when they are out of fellowship, it is going to be really bad because they are so opposite, and that's going to cause a lot of problems. So they have to understand each other. But marriage is the basic unit within a nation because it provides for the future through family, and family is where children are produced, and and the uh, Parents are the source of education for the family and for the children. And so this is the foundation of the idea of a nuclear family. When you see those in different organizations critiquing the nuclear family, which they will mislabel as the family of Western civilization, it is not the family of Western civilization. It is the family of the Bible, it is a direct attack on the bible and so the family is the core not the not the village not the extended family it is mom and dad and the kids that is the core uh, unit in the nation and then we have god established government so all government is good even when the people who are in those offices are evil, sinful, wicked. Because remember, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. That's what Jeremiah said. So we never elect a perfect ruler. We're always going to elect a flawed human being who is going to be in the office. But what we need to do is choose the best of the options and that are closest to the biblical framework. And then we have the identity of nations, this means borders. This means uh, preventing people from just coming into a nation any time they want to. There are various laws, treaties, things of that nature. And then the sixth divine institution is Israel. Now, what makes it a divine institution is it's is it's for all people, whether they're believer or unbeliever. Anybody following these laws of divine establishment are going to have a measure of stability and happiness and productivity. In in the Abrahamic covenant, God said, those who bless Israel, I will bless. He didn't say those believers who bless Israel or those unbelievers who bless. It it applied to everybody. So this is like the other divine institutions. And as I pointed out, the first three were given before there was sin. So this is designed to promote productivity and advanced civilization. When these are not recognized and honored in a culture, that culture will fall apart. The second three are designed to restrain evil. And if you don't believe in absolute evil, which a naturalist does not, they only believe in something that opposes them. But in, in naturalism, you have no ultimate basis for your ethic for right or wrong. Now, one of the things that I want to talk about here is this I- issue of, of Israel. I've got a couple of things I want to bring to your attention. The first is an article that came out July 13, 2016 in the Gatestone Institute by Alan Dershowitz. And he says, Who do bigots blame for police shootings in America? Israel, of course. And he starts off his article by saying, in response to the tragic deaths of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling at the hands of police officers in Minnesota and Louisiana, the New York University chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine posted the following on its Facebook page. Quote, in the past 48 hours, another two black men have been lynched by the police. We must remember that many U.S. police departments train with hashtag Israeli defense forces. The same forces behind the genocide of black people in America are behind the genocide of Palestinians. What this means is that Palestinians must stand with our black comrades. We must struggle for their liberation. It is as important as our own. Hashtag Alton Sterling is as important as hashtag Ali Dawab A Palestinian liberation and black liberation go together. We must recognize this and commit to building for it. So this is part of what is going on. Then I have a couple of videos that I want to play for you. Let me get back to that, okay. Um This is a video that comes from uh, Black Lives Protesters. I'm just going to show you the article. The video I don't think is that um, easy to hear or understand. And the picture is of Black Lives Matter protesters marching through Washington, D.C. on Wednesday. This is sponsored by the organization Black Lives Matter. And the article states Black Lives Matter protesters marching through Washington DC on Wednesday uh, were captured on video chanting, Israel, we know you, you murder children too. And there are a number of things that come along that show that Black Lives Matter has aligned itself. It's been I read it on in 2016. I saw it on their on their webpage and it's on their uh, what we believe they aligned themselves with the Palestinians. Israel, we know you! You murder children, too! too. Israel, we know you! You murder children, too! See that, you can hear them yelling, the two especially, we know you murder children, too. So that shows an anti-Semitic, anti-Israel uh, focus on uh, from the Black Lives Matter organization Genesis 12.3 says those who curse Israel will be cursed those who bless Israel uh, will be will be blessed so these are just some insights, we'll go into that a- evaluation there a uh, little more as we go forward with this study, probably take me more than uh, one week to do this so I'm going to quickly I lost this slide, so I have to go through all the animations again. Well, we have to remember, when we get into some of these issues, these are complex. For some people, they can become very emotional. Uh, I think every American, or just about every American, was incredibly distressed when they saw the video of what happened to George Floyd. And there have been others... uh, where we've seen the video of those who have been apparently from the videos attacked. Now, I'm not saying that's not true. The reason I say that is I learned a very long time ago as a pastor that you wait a long time, whether I'm counseling in marriage whether I am dealing with some social news issue, is you have to wait until you get, all the facts come out or a lot more, and it may take several months before you get all the information. A lot of times with videos, what appears to be true on a video turns out not to be quite as true as the video or sound recording uh, suggested. I'm not saying that in the case of George Floyd or... Uh, some of these others that that that's true i'm just my policy is i always wait until all the information comes out we can't make emotional decisions emotion is the enemy of truth truth putting this up here blazing this on the inside of your eyes uh, needle it into your pillowcases Put it on the walls of your, uh, of, of your house or on your refrigerator. Truth does not care about your emotions. Think about that. Truth is truth. You may not like it. It may not make you feel good, but truth doesn't care about how you feel. The teaching of Scripture does not care about how we feel. Think about how many times in the Scripture Jesus sat down with somebody and said, well, how, how do you feel about this? Think about the woman at the well. Is that what Jesus said when he sat down and talked to her and she starts to talk about the problems between the Jews and the Samaritans? And did Jesus say, well, how do you feel about that? Truth doesn't care about how you feel. Truth is true. We have to align ourselves with truth. Uh, I used to get um, um, somewhat concerned when I would hear people say, well, we need to make the Bible relevant to us. No, no we need to become relevant to the Bible. We, we need to adjust to God. God does not adjust to us. Truth cares about what is biblically correct and what glorifies God. Truth is not about what makes us feel good. That's hard for a lot of Christians because they think, well, I need to go to church and I need to feel good when I go to church. Well, a lot of times the truth of Scripture does not make us feel good. It may generate a, a lot of uh, feelings, some reaction, because we're dead set in doing it our way, and God says, no, that's not right. You need to do it my way. When we read 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16 and 17, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching or instruction, and reproof, that means saying, you're wrong. None of us like to be told you're wrong and for reproof and correction so we can point in the right direction and training in righteousness. Now, when we start off with this, we need to set a biblical framework for understanding rebellion. So I want to look at what we've seen in Samuel, which is a tale of two rebellions. So we've got a framework for looking at it and now we're going to look at these two rebellions we've covered in Samuel. We're going to look at Absalom's rebellion, and then we're going to look at Sheba's rebellion. And so I have about 10 points of summary. I'm not going to enumerate them as points. I'm just going to take you through them. First of all, if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 15, start back in, you could start back as far as 13, we learned that Absalom's rebellion is designed to replace the government of David with his own government. He's going to remove David, his father, from the kingship and replace him with himself, even if that involves the murder or the death of his own father. While Absalom was away, he spent five years away from Jerusalem. While he was away and isolated during that time, he nurtured his sin nature. Anger, resentment hostility and these sins grew within him like a cancer and this is often what happens with people we think we have been come the victim of something and that's the idea in absalom that he's a victim of something and victimology is at the core of much of this social unrest people have been taught that you're a victim well biblically let me tell you they're right Every single one of us is a victim of Adam's original sin. Every one of us. And because Adam made that choice, we have to live in a really screwed up world. We have to live with people who are obnoxious, that people who get in our way, people who don't like us. We have to deal with people who believe different things and people who are jealous of us, people who are angry with us. We are all victims, but we can't use that as an excuse. When we use that as an excuse, we are denying the validity of divine institution number one, which is human responsibility. We have to take responsibility for our own lives and our own decisions, whether they're good decisions and they lead to positive results, or whether they're bad decisions and they lead to to negative consequences. And we can't blame others for our problems. We can't blame our parents, we can't blame our siblings, we can't blame anyone in our family, we can't blame the government for our problems. Whatever problems we have, we have to face as Christians with the Word of God, and we can't allow our sin nature to begin to dominate our thinking with resentment, anger, and all of these other emotions. And this is what happens in various segments of our culture. You have people who are born into very difficult circumstances. Maybe their parents are divorced. Maybe it's a single-parent home. Uh, Maybe they're born into a home where parents are abusive. Maybe they're born into a home of poverty. And then they look at somebody else and that everything looks good. These people are born with um, financial resources, they are born, they have two parents, they have all of the things that the other person wishes they had. But often I find that the person that has everything is just as miserable as the person that doesn't have anything. And the reason is, is that happiness is not a matter of possessions. Happiness is a matter of your own soul. Happiness is a matter of understanding the laws of divine establishment, and for the Christian happiness is understanding your relationship with God and learning the Word of God and being satisfied with what God has given you, and being happy in that which never changes, which is God when um, as I have matured over the last several decades. And I have spent not a lot of time, but a significant amount of time counseling with people, talking to people, getting to know lots of people. I have seen a lot of people that I thought had everything together. They had it made. They had uh, success. They had a great career. They had financial resources. They drove really nice cars. They seemed to go on really great vacations. But then you get to know them. And what you discover after a while is they've got some really Horrible things in their lives, and i don't know anybody who hasn't gone through some really tough times. It may be have to do with their health, it may have to do with their children, it may have had to do with their their parents, it may have had to do with the way they were brought up, but people don't wear these horrible things on their shirt sleeves, and they don't talk about it and a lot of times we just never know what people have dealt with in their life. And I have found that every one of us at some point in our lives has some real bad garbage to deal with. We're all victims because we live in Satan's world and because we live in a corrupt world. And we have to learn to handle that on the basis of the word of God. Well, Absalom is self-centered and he's blaming David for everything. So this gave him time to plan and to work out his plan, and uh, during the three years he was in exile in Geshur, which is found in Second Samuel thirteen thirty-eight, 38, uh, he would have nursed this. He wants to be the king. See, what had happened is that his older brother, half-brother, Amnon, who was David's firstborn, was the one who should have succeeded to the throne. But he killed Amnon. And because of that, Absalom would have been prevented from inheriting the throne. He killed his brother Amnon because Amnon had committed incest with Absalom's full sister, Tamar. He took the law into his own hands and committed murder. So he he has failed in that regard, and he has disqualified himself from being being king. But in his arrogance... He wants to make it happen, to force it to happen. And the problem is that it's not just Absalom that's arrogant. Every one of us is arrogant. Arrogance is at the very core of our sin nature because the orientation of our sin nature is always about me. It's always about what I want, what's going to make me feel good, what's going to make my life better. And some people just nurture and feed their arrogance. They get, uh, they get, get. We talk about the fact that they get the big head, Absalom certainly did. The scripture says that he was handsome and that people continually praised him for that. And being handsome, being good looking, uh, being someone who has a winsome personality has nothing to do with anything you've ever done. You're born that way. It's a matter of how genetics came together in your physical body and in the makeup of your personality which has nothing to do with anything that you've accomplished. So he gets the big head over something that has nothing to do with his own uh, volition, has nothing to do with his own life. And he is nurturing that, and because everybody praises him, uh, he thinks that that he can uh, win the people over and uh, go against uh, David. He's been blessed. He has a wife. He has three sons and a daughter. And then when he, when he finally is allowed to come back from, from uh, Gishor, he's in Jerusalem, he doesn't see the king for two years. So he just continues to nurse this, uh, all of this resentment toward David and his victimology. He just continued to think that he was the one who should be the one on the throne. Now, God has chosen Solomon to be the heir of David, and Solomon is uh, just, still just a boy. But then we find that uh, in order to get David's attention, he causes a fire in one of Joab's fields, and this gets Joab's attention. So he doesn't have an ethical standing. We don't see anything when we look at our our criteria. Uh, Absalom has no relationship with God. We don't know what he thought about any god, but he has a total ethic that is based on what's best for him, and so he destroys somebody else's property in order to get their their attention. He has the idea that the end justifies the means. He has no sense of right or wrong. He is involved in self-promotion. When we look at Genesis chapter, or excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 15, we see that he provided himself with chariots and horses and fifty men that would run before him, so he is uh, a promoting himself all of the time. Everywhere he went, he had this entourage and this pomp and circumstance in order to promote himself before all of the people. As he did that, he told lies. About the government. He told lies about David, said, David really doesn't care, he's too busy, committed this sin, God really doesn't want him to be king anymore. And so he set up his own office, as it were, outside of the gate to Jerusalem. And as people came to Jerusalem to get their problems solved by David or by the court, uh, Absalom would be the one to take care of them. And so he built up a following. And during that time, he began his conspiracy. Later on, we're going to find out that when he goes to Hebron under the guise of fulfilling a vow and making a sacrifice, when he gets there, he gives the word and his spies go throughout the land. Well, that implies that he has already set up this network of spies. He's been involved in these conspiracies. He's been setting up cell groups in every town and every village throughout Israel so that when the time comes, he's prepared. I think that's what's happened in a number of these situations that have uh, that have happened in the U.S. recently, is that there have been events that were not right, that were wrong, and that were being handled by the judicial authorities. But then there were these hostile organizations that came in and and uh, exacerbated the whole thing, and they just lit a fire of uh, chaos and discord, uh, bringing on riots, bringing on all these demonstrations that got out of hand. And you find a lot of Christians say, well, it was injustice. We're fighting injustice, so it's okay. Well, I don't know about other people but my mother always told me the two rights don't make a wrong. That's biblical. You don't you don't fix something by committing another sin, by committing another crime. You fix something through the legally uh, established courts and going to your representatives changing the law. You don't correct things by going out and doing damage. Now, a lot of the people who were Uh, who were seriously upset about George Floyd and about these others wanted to express their grief and their support for the family, and they were peaceable marchers, and that's fine, that's great, that is constitutional, and they have the right to assemble. But that was taken advantage of by a number of these other organizations, and as a result of that, they sow tremendous discord because there are a tremendous number of enemies in this nation. As I was reading today, going through a lot of different uh, names of different organizations, going to web pages and reading all about them, what I discovered was that many of these organizations are funded and financed by the Chinese communists. And that dovetailed with some headline I read yesterday that the FBI said that over 50% of their counterintelligence operations are against Chinese subversives in the United States. So we've got a serious problem in this country with national enemies that have infiltrated uh, many of our institutions. And this has happened not only with the Chinese communists, but it has happened with the Muslims that the uh, money that the Saudi Arabians and other Arabs have from uh, the petrodollars, they have used that to endow uh, departments and chairs and other positions in American universities, and then they get to handpick who's going to be in that chair, and these are people who are teaching things that are hostile to America. So we've been infiltrated uh, by many enemies who are teaching our our students in our universities to hate this country they distort the t- the uh, teaching of um, of american history they distort the information about the founding fathers and the constitution and as a result we have a generation coming up that has not ha- that doesn't value our history and this is why they can go out and they want to destroy monuments and they want to destroy uh, all of these other historical artifacts it doesn't matter to them because they're not really tearing down just statues of those who were in the confederacy those who were slaveholders but they're tearing down uh, in fact i read today uh, an article about them tearing down statues of abolitionists and those who were fi- fighting slavery and so frederick douglas had his statue uh, taken down and and uh, virtually destroyed. So this is a real problem, but you know they f- fail to see the truth. I think a lot of people miss this because of the way it was reported. But two or three weeks ago, made headlines that in a show of um, in a show of virtue signaling, you have Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, went out and she made a big show of taking down uh, the portraits in the Capitol building of three former uh, speakers of the House back in the 19th century who were slave owners. You want to know the rest of the story? They were Democrats. She didn't take them down because they were slaveholders. She took them down because they demonstrate the truth of the statement that the Democrat Party was the party of slaveholders. It was the dominant party in the southern states and the Democrat Party is the party that promoted Jim Crow. The Democrat Party is the party of slavery. It's, it, they did not want civil rights. In the, uh, in, in the 1960s, when they passed the Civil Rights Act, uh, more Republicans voted for it than Democrats. And if it weren't for the Republican votes, the Civil Rights Act never would have passed in the Congress. It is the Republican Party that is the party of abolition, of abolishing slavery. I heard one story today that um, uh, Carol Swain was talking about this. She is also an advocate for uh, for truth and for Scripture. In fact, she was talking about how she was reared in poverty, that when she was 16 years old that she uh, dropped out of school, she got married, she began to have babies, and that she was divorced not long after that, and then she began to go back to community college. Eventually, she was able to get a couple of master's degrees and earned her Ph.D. She had a career as a tenured professor at, uh, I believe it was Princeton, and then she ended her career as a professor in political science at Vanderbilt. So this is somebody who used their volition To overcome all of the things that society was saying she was a victim of, and as she said, if she had known that she was such a victim, she would not have accomplished those things. She would have felt like she it was impossible from the very beginning. And yet, here is a black woman who is an intellectual, grew up as a Democrat until something happened in her life. Guess what happened in her life? She became a Christian. And once she began a Christian and she began to read the Bible, she began to understand the concept of sin, the concept of responsibility, the concept that we live in a fallen world. Then she gradually began to change her worldview and to a biblical worldview. And she it fit with all of the basic common sense things she said that her 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 mother had taught her. And so as a result of that, she, by the... Early part of the 2000s, 2003, 4, somewhere in there, she switched from being a Democrat to being a a Republican, but she talked about the fact that at the time that the Civil Rights Act was was uh, passed. That they had a Democrat governor in Virginia, and Virginia resisted the Civil Rights Act, resisted integration with everything that it had. And then they brought in a Republican governor. And the first thing the Republican governor did was to take his two children, and he walked with them to a black school, a primarily black school, and he enrolled them in that school and then he was the first governor of virginia to appoint any blacks to his administration it wasn't the democrats that did this it was republicans now people say well you know the republican party isn't that way anymore no the republican party is exactly that way uh, it is through, through the welfare system that the Democrat Party has enslaved blacks and has kept them down due to uh, education and a number of things. And if I have time, I'll talk about that some more next week. So what we see with, with uh, this typical modus operandi of the rebel is they told lies about the government. This is what's happening in our education system. And Absalom told lies about David, made him out to be inept, made him out to made himself out to be the only answer. He is the one who would make everybody happy. What he was doing was appealing to their emotions. And this is what is happening today. Is there such an appeal to emotion? And we can understand that because there are some horrible things that have happened uh, to some people. There's horrible things that have happened to, to certain black uh, people that seem to be incredibly unjust, but we have to let the system work. But there's a lot of distrust that has been sown for for the system, which is exactly what Absalom did. He sowed distrust. And the reality is that truth doesn't care about uh, our feelings. We have to focus on what is true and constantly pursue that question. And I am, like I said, I am one to always wait until I make sure I have all the facts and not just react according to what I see or what I hear because there's usually a lot more to it. So the rebels appeal to emotion. But see, Absalom has no ethics, no standards. It's all about gaining uh, approval and gaining power. And in 2 Samuel 15, 6, we read, In this manner Absalom acted toward all Israel, who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go to hebron and pay the vow which i made to the lord and what we'll what we see in history is religion is often used as a cover for evil acts and this has happened time and time again throughout history so he makes up this story uh, about a vow and he's using religion as a cloak to disguise his his treason so he's built this network of spies and traitors in preparation for the time that he's going to begin the revolt. He even goes so far as to bring 200 um, administrators out of Jerusalem so that they will be with him and that he can then move into Jerusalem and he has all of this government uh, administration uh, all ready to go when he takes over uh, from the king. And we see further how he acts like a pagan. When he took his father's concubines, when he raped them out in public on top of the palace as a sign that he was the one who now had authority. This is a violation of the Mosaic law. He doesn't care about God, doesn't care about religion, doesn't care about uh, God's uh, revelation. He doesn't care about the divine institutions of marriage, the divine institution of family. And his perversion of government shows that he has no respect for the divine institution of government as laid out in the in the Mosaic Law. So he, he shows that he is completely overturning the previous government. Now the rebellion of Sheba is the one we studied last time in Second Samuel twenty Uh, Just basically three things. We're not told a lot about Sheba. First of all, he's called a rebel. He is an ish a man of chaos or disruption. So he is a man who is deeply and profoundly arrogant. Second thing we see that may be more of a problem than Absalom is that He doesn't want to replace David. He wants to split the country and take 10 tribes off and establish his own kingdom. He wanted to divide the country, which at this point violated God's plan. Now, after Solomon, there will be a division and there will be a civil war, but it is a divinely authorized civil war. And so Sheba sought to turn the people against David, and he heads all the way to the north, as I showed you last time on the map, to a town called Abel Beth Ma'aka to show that he had the support of the people. But it turns out that he didn't have the support of the people. There is the widow who, uh, who comes and talks With Joab and gives him a plan. She says, We don't want this disruption. We don't want to get rid of David. We don't want to divide the country. See, if a rebellion is going to succeed, you have to make sure that you have everybody in place, that you have disrupted across the whole nation. This is exactly what we saw with Absalom. He had his spies everywhere, he had worked for a number of years to uh, embed his his personality with the people so that when he said, let's get rid of David, everybody said, sure, we'll follow you, Absalom. But Sheba had not taken the time uh, to do that. So he did not have the support of the people and they uh, captured him and beheaded him and threw his head over the wall. So we see uh, this layout of human rebellion, but rebellion did not start there. Rebellion started with Satan. Satan with lucifer. The rebellion is important to understand as a key word for understanding sin. The key Old Testament word for sin is hatah which means to miss the mark, to go out of bounds, to fall short of a standard. But another word that is frequently used, in fact it's the first word that David used in Psalm 51, he when he was confessing his sin, he used all Three words for sin, but the first word he used was pasha. He said, "Blot out my transgressions." Pasha means an act of rebellion. So sin is at its core an act of rebellion against the authority of God. So in Isaiah fourteen twelve to seventeen, we see. Uh, lucifer's sin explained is these five i wills that he has said in his heart which is arrogance i will ascend into heaven i will exalt my throne above the stars of god that's the angels i will also sit on the mount of the congregation that means he'll rule over the angels on the farthest sides of the north i will ascend above the heights of the clouds that again is a metaphor for the angels I will be like the Most High. So he wants to be treated like God. But God is going to judge him. See, even the angels have a category of personal responsibility. When Satan sinned, there are consequences to sin. And God said, You shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the one who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? Who is this guy? Ezekiel gives us another side of this episode where he is pictured as the seal of perfection. He's a cherub who covers, he's the he's full of wisdom, perfect in beauty, describes how he is how he looks. He's the most beautiful creature, the most intelligent creature, the most powerful creature of all of the angels. He's the anointed uh, or chosen, appointed cherub who covers, that is, who covered the throne of God. Uh, God says, I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. So Satan is going to lead a rebellion against God. He is the first rebel. He leads this revolt against God, and it stems from arrogance. All revolution has to do with rebellion against authority. It has to do with arrogance and uh, a resentment toward God. At its very core, every rebellion is an act against God. So next time we're going to come back, see a few more examples of rebellion in the Scripture, and then we'll look at where this takes us. Because one of the questions that people often ask me is do I think that the Ameri- if the American war for independence was valid, was legitimate? And the idea there is that the, is this a just war? Often we get caught up in what I would consider to be, as I've studied this, uh, a wrong question. We say, is it, is it a revolution or is it a war for independence? The question should be phrased, is it a just war? Is it justified? And as I have taken us through our study on Thursday nights, I talked about this recent book that came out this last year called "Was the Founding of um, Amer- Was America Founded uh, by on on the basis of Christianity?" by Mark David Hall, who is a professor at George Fox University. He's a lot of, lot of positions and a lot of accolades he has edited a number of books with another scholar named Daniel Driesbach, who is also one who believes that the bible was uh, that the bible was the most important founding uh, document for the founding fathers so a couple of weeks ago i had gone to mark david hall's website and i sent him an email never got an answer and i thought today well i'm just going to call him you see he debated the chief uh, legal uh, Legal advisor for the Freedom from God from Religion Foundation, which is an atheist group. Uh, I saw that that I found out about him. I saw that on C-SPAN about five or six weeks ago. So I looked him up and I ordered his book and I went to his website. And so I went back to his website and had a phone number there. So I said, "Well, I'll give him a call." So I called him, and uh, you know somebody answered the phone and said, "This is Mark." kind of surprised me because I expected it's summer, school's out, I'm going to get a recording, maybe, maybe I'll hear from you, maybe I won't. And so I was just kind of silent for a minute, and I, su- I said, is, is that you, are, are not a recording? He said, no, it's me, I'm here, what can I do to help you? And so I told him who I was, and we had a nice conversation, and I, um, I said, in your debate, you mentioned that you were writing a book on um, whether uh, the... Uh, American War for Independence was a just war, uh, what, or was it a revolution? And he said that that's right. I'm working on that now. And um, I said, well, I'm I'm studying through this. I gave him a little bit of my background, teaching church history for Chafer Cemetery, things of that nature. And I said, uh, from what you said, I take take it that you take the position that it was a just war. And he said, yes. And I said, well, let me give you my rationale for that and see what you think. And so I did. I'll give it to you next week. He said, well, you're exactly right. And then we, I told him two or three other things that I thought. And you can't find most of this stuff in print anywhere. Nobody's really argued it. But he gave me some good resources, which I would spend a lot of time today reading through. And uh, But we had a good conversation. And because we agreed with each other on just about everything that we talked about, So uh, he teaches in a school called George Fox University, which is about 30 miles southwest of Portland, Oregon. And so anyway, we'll talk about those things next week as well as get into an evaluation of these organizations that are so prevalent, uh, so much on the news these days with regard to protest demonstrations, and we'll take our biblical framework to what they say on their websites about what their goals and objectives are and what they believe, and see if they are something that a Christian can validate. That'll be next uh, Tuesday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things today, Uh, come to understand the biblical framework you've given us so that we can accurately and honestly evaluate what is going on around us and so that we can come to solid conclusions that are based upon your word. And, Father, we pray, too, for the peace in our nation, that there there can be a resolution of these problems without, without a complete disruption or civil war or race war. And we pray that you would give wisdom to our leaders, that they would have the courage and the toughness to do what is necessary to put down any acts of rebellion. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.